Hey everybody, hello and welcome to the very first episode of Late Era, it's a new podcast brought to you by Osiris Media and on this podcast we are going to be digging into the weird, wild, fascinating late careers of all sorts of classic artists from across genres. Uh, These people have albums you know and love. And at some point, maybe uh, you stopped following along with what they were making, but they kept on doing their thing. Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it was bad. Sometimes it was hilarious. Uh, All of it, we think, is worth talking about. So that's what we're going to be doing uh, on this podcast. I'm Andy Kush. I'm Winston Cook-Wilson. And I'm Sam Sadomsky. Season one. It's cool to have actual seasons. Yes. As opposed to our other famous podcast. Right. And uh, if you've heard of us, it's possible that you are familiar with our extremely famous, controversial, uh, what I like to call the world's most popular podcast about the band Chicago. Welcome to Chicago, where we uh, examine the discography of uh, the popular rock band with horns, Chicago, album by album. Uh, if you're if you're a Welcome to Chicago fan, thank you for coming with us to Late Era. And if you're not, maybe you should check that out too. If you're not, uh, if you're not, what who who out what's there wrong with you? Know yeah. One of the reasons that we started this podcast, and one of the things that we have bonded over, the three of us as friends, uh, is a shared interest and kind of yeah, shared interest in this sort of music that no one wants to really listen to or think about or talk about and yet is just out there available for our listening uh both um because in the case of these late career artists we think that it can be like really revealing and and fun uh and is sometimes artistically worthwhile and then also on a more philosophical level uh now that we have access to streaming it's just sort of uh, bizarre that there's all this like kind of almost cultural detritus or something that's floating out there but because of Spotify and YouTube and so on like all that stuff is just as available to us as like you know a Rolling Stones record is and it can be a strange experience wading through it and we're just kind of trying to to do that in real time with you guys our listeners. Uh, and the first record that we're going to be talking about is called Greendale, Greendale by Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Greendale. To me, Neil Young is like the ultimate artist to talk about this with. Um, his catalog is so weird and has so much personality and has lasted so long and kept up such momentum. Uh, Winston has come up with sort of a harebrained idea for us to uh, help you guys get to know us, which is that each of us is going to introduce the other one uh, and then do that again. And Winston, since you're the one who sort of drove us into this disaster, I think you have to go first. Well, first of all, have you heard of a team building exercise? (laughs) Sam, have you heard of yeah, it? Yeah, I'm familiar with the concept. Oh, yeah, I thought you were asking rhetorically. No, um, yeah, I was asking I mostly you, Sam. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> obviously obviously we we have over a year and a half of podcasting experience together, so we know each other pretty well. But I still think we could recenter ourselves because the tone of this podcast will be a bit different. Obviously, we're covering a variety of music, some of which is significantly more listenable than Chicago. In fact, most of it if not all of it, which doesn't explain why I wanted to do this, but I think it's it's fun. <laughs> yeah, where are you going with this? <laughs> I want I want people to really know what we're about before we get into this. All right, so make your introductions. Damn, I didn't, re- I didn't rehearse this. It'd be a little harder than I... Okay, so um, Andy Cush uh, is a writer and editor. Uh, we work together at Spin for a couple years 
He's now a freelance writer and editor and also a contributing editor at Pitchfork. Um, he's a Baltimore boy. Uh, like me, he studied... Well, actually, that's a spoiler from my bio, but uh, he studied... Wow. Yeah, fuck. That's what I say. That's what I do when I'm frustrated. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> Uh, he, he studied composition and ethnomusicology in school and uh, has yeah. has been an active musician as well as a uh, writer through through the years. He's still active in a band called Garcia Peoples, <laughs> playing bass. He writes his own songs. He's he's a great reporter as well, as well as a, as a critic. And you know what else Andy is? is a great guy. That was great. I feel honored. I guess we're going to do it You're in order me, like this. <laughs> is that the best way to do I mean, it? This is fascinating <laughs> stuff, I'm sure, for people who don't know us at all. Sam Sadomsky uh, <laughs> is a writer at Pitchfork and just an uh, excellent <laughs> music critic, a good friend for years, who also is an active musician, recording as The Bird Calls, BCI, and under various pseudonyms over the years. He is an insane Bruce Springsteen fan since a young age, uh, growing up in Reading, Pennsylvania. Definitely. He went to school to study mu uh, music-related things, but then kind of got more into writing, moved to the Big Apple, got more into writing, went to school for that, and then got a job at Pitchfork where he fucking became one of the big names in the album review game. He's beloved by every single person who knows him. That's true. Uh, he is, sweet. He, he's a perfect co-host for this podcast because he has an encyclopedic knowledge of the discographies of the artists that he loves. I would say that's a big part of how you approach music. Is, is yeah, complete. This makes me want to cry. Yeah, well, I've never heard anyone speak so highly of me while I was in the room. I think I'm starting to see the effects of this team building exercise. I'm re really enjoying it more than I thought I would. Yeah, I feel more like a team already. Yeah. All right, so let's move on. Uh <laughs> <laughs> another another 30 minutes. We're going to really bring this thing home. We're going to keep doing it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so Winston <laughs> and I met while we were both writers at Spin, like you said. Uh <laughs> He, these days, is mostly a musician. He leads an amazing band called Office Culture and also uh, writes his own music under the name Winston C.W. Uh, he loves Grady's Cold Brew. Uh, he lives in Brooklyn. He's from Pittsburgh. Um, I saw him the other day uh, at a safe distance from each other. That's true. And uh, he's turned me on to probably more great music than uh, any other person I have met in my life. Whoa. So I appreciate that a lot. Damn. That's amazing. And now I have to introduce Sam again. I just want to, I don't think we all <laughs> need to introduce each other. Go I mean, fucking through it. Okay. Uh, what else can I say about Sam uh, beside, you know, beyond Winston's lovely introduction of him? Uh, you didn't say that I'm Jewish. Uh, more wow, muscular yeah, than true. you might expect. Sam is yeah. a little more jacked than you might expect if you just are familiar with him as a writer. That's true, for sure. Okay, my turn? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, let's see. Winston Cook Wilson. Um, one of the first times me and Winston hung out. Uh, I saw him from across the street, and upon making eye contact, he dabbed. And then wow. when I got closer, he gave me a Wodehouse book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Winston is vast, and he contains multitudes. And he's also a great impressionist. He does good impressions oh, of people. Yeah, thank you. I was uh, hoping someone would mention that. Um, as far as Andy is concerned, I have a great deal of respect for Andy, both as a versatile musician and as an editor he's edited a few of my pieces of pitchfork and always makes them smarter um, and i have a ton of respect for him as well as a reporter um his review of uh, pink floyd metal that went up a few days ago was just like beautiful music writing that really like it's like a rare piece on an older album that just takes in all of the years between its release and now and just kind of shows, I don't know how vital it still can be. I 
There wow. you go. Thank you very much, Sam. This is amazing. I'm, I'm sure we'll use <laughs> all of it, and I won't cut it. <laughs> It'll just be like, Sam uh, is more muscly than you might expect. <laughs> yeah, I just cut to Winston's a great impressionist. <laughs> yeah, we should edit it down to the, the relevant stuff like that. Grandpa said that cousin Jed sitting on the porch. I won't retire, but I might retread. Because I've been a Neil Young fan for a long time. I kind of attribute Neil Young with teaching me how to follow an artist's career and in some ways mm. like how to like be a fan of an artist and like dig through a catalog like I don't know like I imagine a lot of people my age um I'm 17 by the way no I'm 27 <laughs> and I like my earliest memories with Neil Young are hearing Harvest Moon in my parents car um mm-hmm. classic parents so, car record yeah, totally, especially if, like, you're a true 90s kid. Um, and so, like, realizing that it was, that was, like, recent Neil, and then there was, like, this old classic Neil that didn't sound that different, and then, like, filling in the gaps, realizing he had these, like, kind of dark, uh, more, like, um, like visceral records, like Tonight's the Night, and then learning he had, like, these kind of weird, like... Um, Realizing he had like grunge albums with Pearl Jam and then these weird experiments like trans, it just like totally showed you the way an artist could like grow and evolve and change. And you could like dig into different corners of their catalog and find the one that spoke to what you were looking for in music. So I think he's kind of emblematic of the type of things we're going to be looking for on the this podcast, which are like later works that are equally inspired or speak to a different part of the artist's like career that people don't talk about like those kinds of things there are countless records we could have picked but this, i was just yeah. gonna say the same thing this one is uh just a is a really expansive crazy experiment that i had always kind of wanted to get more into because i'm not by any means an encyclopedic neil young fan in the way that at, at, that's uh, Sam and Andy are. Um, but Greendale is not just an album. It's a lot more than it's that. An, it's a rock opera, but also I encountered some sort of promotional material that bills it as like a musical novel or something like that. That was uh, the, um, like the phrase used at the time. I remember. Yeah. The distinction made that it wasn't a rock opera it wasn't a concept album it was a musical novel do we know in neil young's mind like what is the factor that makes this a musical novel rather than a rock opera i don't know i mean no you would think it he would that he would uh, like compare he's compared it to also um as sam was pointing out twin peaks and the sopranos so if you think of oh interesting serial television is kind of being novelistic chapter based long form character development kind of thing yeah well without even knowing that comparison okay so people should know that this album in the traditional sort of concert concept album rock opera way like there's a story that it tells in the lyrics but then it also takes that a step further there's a uh a semi-narrative film that goes along with it and then uh, years later there was also a graphic novel that came out about it or you know that was based on it and taking in all of those things without even knowing that he had compared it to Twin Peaks and The Sopranos I thought like this would make a pretty good sort of like modern prestige Netflix like family drama it reminded me of like watching Bloodline or something like that <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> and any any bloodline uh, heads out there? I'm the only one. I watched a few. Of well, us. let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You got to lead us in here a little bit. Like, tell us right. who who is Neil Young. Neil Young is a Canadian singer songwriter who made the album Greendale in 2003. <laughs> okay, no. there you go. There you go, folks. <laughs> no, Neil Young is uh, you know, he's like uh, one of the greats. Um. He is driven by this history of averting expectations, uh, following his heart, um, 
driven by integrity, fighting for the rights of the farmers, um, loves high audio quality. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We could do a whole podcast episode about just his crusade for good audio quality. That's probably the defining late career Neil Young thing. It's true. I mean, but that like lasted his whole career pretty much. He was always yeah, really yeah. into like the sound itself. Um, he was like um, extremely prolific in the seventies, extremely erratic to the extent that we're still today finding out about like albums he scrapped in between his major albums, which by the way arrived like an album a year, and all of them are pretty much stone cold classics through the seventies. Yeah. Um, In the 80s, he kind of becomes the symbol of, like, an artist losing his way, which ironically was his way of maintaining his integrity. It was like this fight against his label where he refused to make a commercially viable album. So he went in all these different directions, different genres. Um, He is... I mean, all of this is precedent for something like Greendale, which comes out in the early 2000s and is another example of what a lot of people would consider just like an offbeat Neil Young vanity project. But I personally think is a lot more than that. Yeah, there are any number, as Winston said, like even I'll say that before we settled on Greendale, uh, there was another Neil Young album we thought about doing called Everybody's Rockin', which was sort of like this rockabilly throwback album. There's Trans, his kind of 80s synth pop, proto techno album there's this notes for you which was his sort of like r&b and blues album that he made even the one right before greendale are you passionate could have been a late era candidate yeah. made with booker t and the mgs another sort of r&b experiment like neil young's entire career after like 1980 or so is almost like not quite, but almost like nothing but these sort of perplexing, uh, you know, late career experiments. Yeah. Mirrorball would also have been a possibility. The one yes, he made, Mirrorball, with- the album that he made with Pearl Jam. Yeah, yeah, it's like name an album. I mean, he made an album about his car. He made a concept album about Monsanto. He made an album <laughs> yeah. in a phone booth. Like you know, yeah, uh, that's a cool record. Uh, there's also uh, there's weld the album that's like from his tour with sonic youth where thurston moore or somebody convinced him to put out a record of all just like feedback and like weird beginnings and endings of songs from that tour uh there are so many strange and oft more often than not like cool interesting uh late career new young albums but greendale yeah. is uniquely is a uniquely rich experience i think Yeah, and for me, this is, like, the essence of Neil Young, which is, like, there's so much heart in everything he does, where it's, like, and this is what I mean when I say, like, it kind of taught me how to be a fan, where it's, like, on the surface, most of these albums are really easy to dismiss. But even if you listen to, like, Everybody's Rockin', there's just really beautiful songwriting on it, and Mm -hmm. nothing is really that tossed off. Like, I don't know. He's also an artist, too. It's, like... He, I read in an interview about Greendale where he was kind of like, um, he was like, you know, my whole career, it's like critics have despised what I think is my best work. Um, and they've like always celebrated the ones that I didn't even put that much thought into. And so it's like, you know, everything, there is a lot in his catalog, despite his like immense fame and legacy. There's a lot that feels ripe for rediscovering. One thing that we should say is that, you know, he's had this kind of mutable unit called Crazy Horse, uh, you know, since the 70s and uh, has given birth to a lot of his, like, loudest and most raucous music. And a lot of his most popular work. Right. And And Greendale is a Crazy Horse project um and that is interesting because despite the scope of the story which we'll try to give you a rundown of here um the music is pretty stark it's basically like a 
a trio. It's a it's a, and long songs that, uh, despite the fact that like he has a lot of kind of plot to get to, and then there's this vibe like he's just trying to get all these lyrics he's written down on, on in his like notebook, trying to like fire them all out there, get it all in. There's there's still him kind of indulging the side of him that just likes playing riffs and going off on the guitar for extended periods of time. Um, which yeah, yeah it's just like, an interesting concept of okay, I'm gonna do this ambitious thing, but I'm gonna do it in the, the starkest, most you know, kind of spontaneous sounding way possible. Totally, it's like it, it is totally at odds with the idea of like the rock. Well, maybe that's why he didn't want to call it a rock opera. Because the music itself is so, like, there's nothing operatic about it at all. It's, like, so raw. Like, even, to me, Greendale sounds rawer even than, like, Tonight's the Night. Like, it's more kind of, like, fucked up. Maybe because there's only one guitar. Uh, like, his his voice is, like, off the mic half the time. Like, it is a very, very raw-sounding album. Yeah. Which is interestingly at odds with the high-conceptness of... The premise of it. Right. It's what critics in 2003 might call sloppy or even half-assed. Yes. <laughs> in its delivery. I guess. I guess in terms of the operatic thing, there is kind of a Greek chorus that seeps in to say things like Greendale and uh, yeah, uh, we have be to save rain. Mother Earth and be the rain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, this which also leads to the point that it's also totally ridiculous <laughs> yes like it it is just like to me like no other album right uh which we'll get into yeah i mean should we just run down what 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 the plot of this thing is i mean so the, what is actually covered in the album what you see in the film the, the film is pretty close to just dramatizing the lyrics on the album they're not getting a whole lot of extra plot in it. A little bit, maybe. And then the graphic novel, which came a few years later and is sanctioned by Neil Young but written by two other people, uh, kind of creates this mystical comic book-y world to contextualize stuff in that really kind of gets blown out at the end. Okay, before we summarize the plot, I'm going to read the intro to the graphic novel, if you guys don't mind. I think it does a pretty good job of preparing you for the vibe of the yeah. whole thing. And this was actually penned seemingly by Neil Young. Yeah, yeah. He writes, We're going on a little trip, folks. So these stories are about a place called Greendale, and it's a green dale. There's a lot going on in town. It seems to be a pretty mellow place, really. In town, there's about twenty to 25,000 people, and it's not a very big place at all. If there's a huge map, and there is, that just shows Greendale. Very little happening over here. There's mountains and farms. Over there, there's an ocean. Well, Greendale's a nice town, but it has its quirks. There's a lot going on in Greendale that I don't know about either, even though he just told us there's not a lot going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you imagine? I mean, I made it up, and I don't know what the hell's going on. So don't feel bad if you feel a little out of it with this. No one really knows. Which seems to me like it's like preparing the reader for, you know, you may not be able to follow this story at all. Okay, so who wants to summarize the plot of Greendale? Yeah, okay, I'll try to start here. Um, this is a story about the green, the family, the Greens. You know, depending on which text you're looking at, uh, different generations of the Green family. And the kind of the protagonist turns out to be uh, Sun Green, who is... Uh, you know, sort of high school aged or like early 20s. Uh, a young woman growing up in Greendale who has a passion for uh, environmentalism and anti-war sentiment. Um, and she definitely feels kind of cooped up there and misunderstood by not only uh, the people who live in Greendale, but also members of her family, um, which include her... Uh, cousin am i jed is her cousin right jed uh who is ki kind of like a, a like a weed dealer type dude a, a war veteran and a weed dealer type dude getting that right 
he's he's definitely got some PTSD. He's like has suicidal tendencies. Just kind of a ne'er do well that uh, kind of is at odds with her hippiness. Yeah, he's kind of a classic Northern California character, sort of left, sort of libertarian, right. rural weed guy. Yeah, and this is in California, in like a coastal California town, Greendale. And then there is the prevalent character of their grandpa, whose first name is eluding me right now. I think maybe he's just grandpa. He, he has a name in the uh, graphic novel, but we can't get too far into that shit. Uh, grandpa is in kind of early, well, no, sort of advanced dementia. Um, you get a lot of him talking about the old days. And uh, that's, that's a lot of him talking about the old days. He's a, he's a gun. <laughs> what, what else? In, what else is there about Grandpa? He loves. I'm realizing how little of this I absorbed in years of listening to the album. Yeah, it's very hard. We should say, like, you will not absorb most of yeah. this just from listening to the record. This is all the first song. Too. Right, 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 right. There's a long. There's a long song called Grandpa's Interview where you don't get a whole lot other than. You know, things used to be simpler, um, kind of an apathy for the direction of the world around him, where his son, of course, is very invested in, like, anti-war stuff. Like, she builds a a big anti-war symbol in a field out of hay bales in the film. So let's get to the action. Okay, Uh, okay, the action is that Jed gets pulled over with with drugs in his his truck and ends up shooting uh, a police officer this guy carmichael that's one big element um there's a song that's an extensive wake for carmichael and that's like kind of one of the weirdest plots and things on the album don't really know what he's trying to say about the police uh but then uh there's also an element that there's this kind of devilish imagined character that comes to town and kind of messes with Sun and also, you know, creates uh, unfortunate events. In the movie, he pours little things in people's drinks. and He, uh, like, turns someone into a goat in the graphic novel. Yes. Or, like, a caribou or something. Yes, yes. Um, and, yeah, he's just kind of wreaking havoc and, I guess, is, is probably the reason that the Jed thing happened. Um. I'm going to turn it over to Andy. <laughs> okay. So Carmichael's dead. Uh, Jed goes to jail for it. Uh, the sort of second climax happens when uh, reporters show up uh, at, I think, the house where Grandpa is staying because they want to interview him. And he gets really angry. This is this song, Grandpa's Interview, which is like, I should just want to pause and say, like, when you're queuing up a Neil Young's album and there's like a 13 minute long song called Grandpa's Interview, <laughs> it's a pretty daunting thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then while he's, he comes out on the porch, he's ranting at these reporters about how TV sucks and the only thing he likes on TV is Leave it to Beaver. Uh, he mm. dies of a heart attack or something like that. Yeah, because and, of, because he's uh, being the presser invading his space. Yeah, and a funny thing there, what I noticed when I was watching the movie is like his la- grandpa's dying words are, that guy who just keeps singing, can't somebody shut him up? I don't know for the life of me where he comes up with this stuff. Mm-hmm. One of many, well, one of a few little f- meta storytelling moments that seem to allude to Neil Young himself. Uh, and then Sun kind of gets radicalized by the experience of her grandpa dying and uh, becomes this kind of like eco-warrior character. She meets a man named Earth Brown uh, who gets sort of possessed by the devil somehow. Uh, and then <laughs> he's an environmental activist. Yeah. Yes. He's an environmental a- activist. In the graphic novel, there's a very graphic sex scene between Earth Brown and yeah, Sun. We Green. don't need to get into this. I, 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 don't, I, call it, I call it hot. I call it just two women and people relating in a natural yeah. way. Great character building. The- I wonder if there's like a cut 11th song that's just Neil Young singing about that sex scene, just describing it play by play. I'd like to see him signing off on the panels in the graphic novel. Yeah. I bet you would. (laughs) All right. This is getting me too excited. We're going to move on. 
So I think that's enough for the plot. Now, yeah. what I want you to do is to imagine it's the year 2003 and Neil Young is coming to town and you're going to see him live. You're just like a casual fan. Maybe you remember <laughs> his hits from the 70s and he has his last record uh, was like, you probably haven't paid attention to his new music. So you go to the Neil Young show. He sits on the stage with an acoustic guitar and he plays this music he tells this story with just an acoustic guitar for like two hours and in between songs when you think he's gonna address the audience or introduce heart of gold he gives more expository details about what's happening in the songs <laughs> son was asleep on his shoulder totally relaxed she was dreaming She was dreaming about her high school, Greendale High. They were practicing for a big play. This is what happens before the album comes out. He goes on like a really polarizing tour where he just plays the whole thing through, which I love, um, which is also kind of a tradition in Neil Young's career. Um, there's like a period before Tonight's the Night came out when he used to play that album front to back, like at kind of the peak of his commercial success. And he would just play these like really burnt out songs. And then when they were done, he would say, all right, I'll play one you've heard before. And then he would play Tonight's the Night again. <laughs> um, so he definitely has like a lineage of being kind of antagonistic to audiences, but in retrospect, I'm kind of like, I would love to have seen one of these Greendale shows. Like, it just sounds completely insane. So the whole tour he was doing by himself, he this, he didn't tour with Crazy Horse doing it? I think he did after the record came out. Oh, okay. Yeah. I say this as someone who mostly enjoys this record. I think seeing Neil Young play it without a band would be, like, dreadful. Yeah. It would be very difficult for me to sit through an hour plus of of just Neil Young playing these songs. Yeah, right. the ba- the band's sound is is one of the best parts of it, and and the songs themselves are very like even by the standards of Neil Young, um, they're like super rudimentary in terms of like their chords and their melodies. Like there are so many lyrics and clearly he spent a lot of time thinking about the concept, but often a song might just kind of vamp on two chords with like a melody that just sort of almost sits on one note or something is more like talking than singing. Like they're not, uh, at least to me, they're not like Neil Young's most melodically riveting songs he's ever written. No. And like almost, intentionally so it's um, there's almost like it's like the fall or something like that just like let's Mm -hmm. just groove on this thing and and let me kind of rant on top of it yeah yeah i actually love this album melodically though i could see how it would be kind of boring to some people but like stuff like the riff and falling from above and the riff and um grandpa's interview even like that one kind of reminds me of like some 70s neil like for me musically it's really in like my total neil comfort zone like i think i could like kind of hear and like i mean it's telling that i can i know so little of the plot but i've listened to these songs a bunch like it's just really hypnotic to me in a cool way the falling from above is like a pretty beautiful tune i would i would say that as an exception to what I just said about the rest of the record. I'll give some background on the making of the album. I'll read this quote from Neil Young in Mojo magazine. I just started writing, he said. I wasn't doing a movie at first or anything. I was doing an album, and I was just going one song at a time. As soon as the song was written, I'd bring it to the band, write the lyrics on the way over to the studio, and put them on the computer big so I could read them when we were doing it, so it was just as new to me as it was to anybody else. We'd record it, mix it, complete it, and then I'd go on to the next song. The next song wasn't even born before the last song was finished. I didn't know I was doing story until I was well into it and I could see the same characters coming back. Kind of incredible to me. That's insane. Yeah, just insane. Like an insane burst of inspiration for for an artist at this point in his career. Um, 
I mean, you can see it. You can see how he's kind of like these narratives in the movie and stuff is kind of sewing things together in a kind of weird way. Like, how do you get to this wake for the dead police officer, for instance? Right. Like, loose connections. It makes sense, sort of, that like falling from above, uh, which, as we were saying, is like a one of the more kind of like traditionally pretty. I would say like. It's not my favorite on the record, but it's like the most accessible song on the record, I would say. Makes sense if he wrote that one first, because it's like, that's a song. I could see writing that and being like, oh, let me spin this out to the other thing to the next thing and like as the songs go on they kind of do get more and more specific about the characters uh like the like the you know carmichael you know the 10 minute song about the police officer couldn't have been like the first song that was written for this record right they sort of get more and more elaborately involved in the mythology as they go on which is sort of a cool structural thing yeah and i don't i don't think we even have the kind of the protagonist of sun established totally until like the last song and then he seems to be hung up on grandpa increasingly (laughs) gotta got that gotta get that grandpa in something i really like about falling from above is and like you said andy it kind of makes sense that it birthed all the other songs is it kind of presents this challenge it's the first song on the record and it's the first one that addresses the singer so there's a line that's spoken by grandpa where he (laughs) says um seems like that guy singing this song's been doing it for a long time is there anything he knows that he ain't said which i think is probably a challenge or a question that a lot of artists neil young's age or at that point in their career ask themselves which is like there's another line where he goes, I won't, I won't retire, but I might retread. So there's like yeah. the question of, am I repeating myself? You know, am I, is there a law of diminishing returns with what I'm creating? And so it makes sense that his response to that song or a song that poses that question is to tell a really specific kind of meandering, long-winded story, you know, totally. in a way that he hasn't done before. I love... uh the way that he occasionally returns to, as I mentioned before, like every so often there will see, there seems to be like this moment. He could be like very deep in the story that he's telling. And then he'll sing something that's like, it's unclear if it's coming from one of the characters mouths or something, but it seems to be a lyric about him um, as a songwriter uh, that he's like in a weird way, this like hover, Neil Young as a presence is this kind of like specter that hovers over the story or something like that, uh, which is then like sort of literalized in the in the graphic novel. The devil character certainly seems like it's supposed to be like he kind of looks like Neil Young. Oh, yeah. The devil character in the graphic novel. There's a song called Devil's Sidewalk, by the way, that introduces the devil character who, yeah, is like dressed sort of like somewhere between neil young and a character in like who framed roger rabbit like in the in the (laughs) film and he dances along and what's most fascinating is a lot of the harmonica on the album it becomes diegetic music in the movie and in the graphic novel like the devil is playing the harmonica as if he's yeah seating is it the pied piper of bad shit and uh the harmonica is, is doing some of that work so I just love to think of Neil con- conceiving of what that character would be like and look like. Since the film, you have to keep in mind, I don't know if we said this, directed by Neil Young, written by Neil Young, director of photography, yes, edited Neil, by Young, Neil Young. Edited by Neil Young, yeah. <laughs> director yeah. of photography. Yeah, that's my that's my favorite. Yeah. yeah. Under under a series of pseudonyms also. Yeah. Directed right. by well, Bernard Shakey. Bernard Shakey is a uh, long-standing pseudonym. He yes, made yes. a few movies with that name. Is a budding filmmaker. Yeah, he's made a lot of movies, um, really. It's worth saying that the film is basically a silent movie that characters are often just uh, mouthing along to lyrics on the album. For instance, Falling From Above is mostly sung by Grandpa on a porch with occasional interjections. 
So you get like funny sound effects and uh, very literal representations of, of lyrics synced up to, you know, and it's on Super 8 film. I actually found that the film and even the graphic novel actually do genuinely add to the experience of the album in a way that I would sort of like roll my eyes at uh, with other kind of big concept album multimedia productions uh, where like, I don't know, like I don't really feel like I need to watch like the Pink Floyd's The Wall, the movie. Uh, uh, but, uh, okay, wait. <laughs> I actually like the but, wall movie. The wall movie is cool, but okay, go ahead. I've I'll, actually I'll never, se- I've never seen it, so I shouldn't d- dismiss it out of hand. Uh, but, but it, I, like, I there's, I felt more poignantly about the songs after kind of seeing them uh, come out of these characters' mouths, even if it was in a totally silly way, like. Uh, in the film, like there's a scene where uh, Grandpa is reading like the headlines in the newspaper, and they're very obviously they've just been printed out on like printer paper, cut out and like pasted over the headlines of an actual newspaper. Like it's the it's extremely low budget uh, yeah. in a way that is charming, um, but to me it actually was weirdly kind of moving and made me uh, made me like the album more. There's something about like the way Neil Young does these things that I just find like so endearing that I almost like can't be critical about it. It's almost yeah. just like because he always does do the things he says he's going to, where it's like he yes. made something he's like it's going to be a movie, and it's like the movie almost looks like it was made in just like one day, like just as a, the matter of like let's get it like five, four, three, two, like yeah, I don't know where it's like. Uh, like you can't help but just like admire the fact that he went for it and you know like totally the project but personally i the movie does not add doesn't add that much for me but yeah, i'm fair. glad i'm glad that it does for you too okay whatever um <laughs> it uh <laughs> What you said you don't about like the movie cinema. also makes me think... <laughs> I didn't like the Super 8 approach. I'm going to uh, just quote briefly from the uh, review of this film by Armand White in the New York press. <laughs> Armand White is like a famously contrarian, just very strange man uh, who who has been writing about movies for many years. Conservative. Naturally, he... Yes, he's conservative and he... <laughs> draws out some conservative threads from uh, Greendale and naturally he just loves, loves it. Uh, One paragraph I wanted to just single out uh, blown up to 35 millimeter. The grainy look is weirdly trenchant befitting young subject of hometown paranoia. It is neither resolutely dispassionate nor slick like lost in translation. I'm not sure whether yeah. Sophia Coppola's current cascade point. of honors is being for being naive or just being a rich girl. Either way, it's pathetic. Just love Armand White's <laughs> extremely gratuitous jab at Sophia Coppola in the middle yeah. of his Greendale review. M- Millionaire Young has not lost the common touch. That's the source of Greendale's humor and bold good sense. Armand White's whole takeaway is that it's like a, a masterpiece of like of uh understanding like the disenfranch the disenfranchisement of the ordinary person in america from the kind of like elite media and and that kind of thing he seems to be really focused on the grandpa character yeah well because because if he was focused on son it wouldn't this doesn't really scan exactly with yeah which which he does acknowledge and that's the great thing about greendale is there's a character for everyone Oh, that's yeah. very true. So we, you could be into Trump or you could, you know, in these t- polarizing times, Greendale uh, has, yeah. you know, can bring us together if you. We were talking about making a BuzzFeed style quiz uh, for what Greendale character are you? So if any listeners are interested in that, just drop us a line and maybe like Neil Young, we'll actually follow through on our project mm-hmm, and do it. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. I just love the idea of like film critics, like settling into their seats to watch this movie and being like, yeah. Hmm. Like, just, I remember when the Monsanto years film in like 2015 was in theaters. I took my sister to see it with me just because I was like excited. 
and she sat through like an hour and 20 minutes of like Neil Young and Lucas Nelson and Micah Nelson like palling around and singing these terrible songs about <laughs> food justice afterwards she was so mad at me she was like <laughs> she was like that wasn't even a movie like it really stretches the definition yeah but yeah it's just it's funny to imagine any of this like outside the universe of neil's films like of his work it's even crazier to imagine like a film critic going and being like i love it like <laughs> i don't know In some ways, it's, like, really a classic Neil-structured album where, like, you get, like, this kind of, like, setting the scene intro. You get this kind of, like, depressive dip right in the middle. Like, the song Bandit, which I, is one of my favorites. It's, like, very much in the spirit of, like, borrowed tune or something. This kind of, like, stark, just, like, alone at an instrument type song and then it ends as so many of his albums do with a an ode to mother earth yeah which is the last two songs to me are uh the hardest from you know i think uh the hardest to to, to get into to and enjoy appreciate. yeah to enjoy. oh i thought you meant would, like would, the best they fucking I go would agree hard <laughs> no, no, the, so Sun Green uh, one thing we didn't really talk about in the plot is that she you know when she gets sort of radicalized then she goes out and is like um, becomes this very visible protester and she's you know speaking truth to power and so uh, one her phrase her like protest phrase which is a sort of really grating chorus in this song to me is a, hey Mr. Clean you're dirty now too which is like in a fake megaphone sound effect and it happens like a thousand times in the song is it the longest song on the on the album maybe uh it certainly feels that way it's the second longest song then it goes right into be the rain which is um you know sam might have more sympathy for like the kind of really on the nose pro-environmental stuff with Neil. I respect it all, you know, but sometimes... Thank you. Sometimes it's uh, difficult to uh, handle for me. Um, and it's a it's a trope, major, major trope for him. Yeah, I think of all the songs on the record, Be The Rain is the one that he's played live the most outside the context of the album. Um, especially like on recent tours with Promise of the Real because I think like maybe more than the others it doesn't like need the narrative thrust like because it ends the album it's more of like a chant so it's kind of like in that lineage it's like to me like this album's attempt to have like rockin' in the free world or you know something like that but I could see finding it grating for 10 minutes of it that was not sun green is grading this is more like all right yeah. all right all right i mean it's it's the landing point it's the definite it's like the all you need is love that's what it is <laughs> it's the yeah. it's the landing point it's like you know nailing in kind of a moral for this thing which is we've got to save mother earth and be the rain is right. kind of like get active you know which is kind of funny like i didn't know until sam said so that neil's process for writing this was writing the songs in order but the idea that this whole thing was about environmental activism really does not arise at all until like the last two songs or so, maybe the last three songs. And now it's like, oh, this is what I was talking about the whole time, the environment. Right, right. And then when you go and read the graphic novel, which came out much later, then that element centered from the very beginning. Yeah. But it's really not that way on the album. Even in the movie, they they insert a lot of like news broadcasts in to show that like son is just obsessed with the things that are going on in the world and so she becomes by the end of the album she is like this counterpoint this this energy that rises above this kind of crumbling town and the things that the devil does to it and in the in the graphic novel especially the devil is like represents corporate interests and uh you know the in the the graphic novel really leans into the funny like uh 
uh, Bush era stuff too. There's a good line yeah. in the graphic novel where they're smoking weed in a van. The active these environmental activists in Sun Green are smoking weed in the van, and they go. The thing I'm most sick of is this fake-ass propaganda saying that everyone thinks Iraq has WMDs. And that's part of why I feel like it should be adapted for Netflix, because I think we're ready for the George W. Bush-era period piece at this point. Honestly, they could update it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, like, make it about Trump. But it'll be a little more complicated. Make Sun Green Greta Thunberg. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) jeez. Yeah, we get political on here. Maybe cut that. Where is the lie? I'll cut that in. Somewhere. There is none. Yeah, yeah, there's none. Neil Neil's yeah. not in the, I mean, in the habit of lying. I two things. One is that I think it's a good point that the environmentalist stuff does kind of come out of left field and is sort of a funny celebration to close the album. But it really is like Neil's favorite, his favorite moral. Like I can, like I can think of if like Ragged Glory ends with Natural Anthem. Like Harvest Moon ends with natural beauty. Um, there's like uh, there's like a lot of, I mean, his movie Human Highway. There's like that weird dream sequence where, like, they dance off in a field. Like, I think it's like always his answer to like when you get away from like the evils of the world. What does it look like? Well, it looks like saving Mother Earth. I like how so. you presented that as like you know that scene in Human Highway. Like uh, we all we all we're all intimately familiar with. Oh, you Human guys Highway. love Greendale the movie. I assumed you. Well, no. I, now now I'm gonna go deep. Human yeah. Highway is I'd say maybe a top ten Neil Young song for me, and I did not know there was a film. Yeah, well, it's the trans movie. It's like with Devo in it. Do they do a transified version of the song Human Highway in the movie? No, because it's also it it's like comes out. It has like just as many songs from Comes a Time in it as it does from Trans, weirdly. Like the sequence I'm thinking of, it's to the first song on Comes a Time, uh, going back. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, the other thing is that, yeah, this album is another thing we haven't talked about, is that it's kind of dated to the early 2000s. um, And it begins sort of his inquiry into the Bush administration, which peaks on an album called Living With War. That's like really specific about Bush. I was going to ask you, Sam, as probably the deepest Neil scholar of all of us, from what I know of Neil, this feels sort of like the beginning of the really explicitly polemical later albums we get. The first thing I thought when I dug into it for the first time is that it really reminds me of living with war and the Monsanto years. Was it the first time he was doing this? Um, I mean, I think it was pretty political in the 80s. Like Freedom is a pretty political album and life does something similar. But I would say it begins a trend of Neil albums made really quickly in the 21st century and put out really quickly, which is something that all of those have in common, especially Living With War. Like, I remember Living With War is one of the first albums that I heard on the internet before it was actually released. Like, he put it directly onto his website as soon as it was done. Yeah, which at the time seemed really cool to me. Um, But yeah... He definitely like goes in and out with political stuff during the 21st century and like into his weird pet subjects. But I mean, he's obviously like been pretty vocal about Trump lately. I guess that being made quickly thing is a part of it. There's a particular sensibility of his more recent records where they address things that are happening in the world in really specific terms. Yeah. I mean, let's not forget he's like the guy who wrote Ohio, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But they sound as though it's like, if I don't get this out as soon as possible, there's this urgency to the sound that's like wanting to react to the news in real time or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And goes like to its simplicity too, where it's like the point wasn't to like orchestrate it or compose it. It was like just like to give him like a good groove to get his thoughts out over. Right. So, that, yeah. So where where does he go from there exactly? I mean, these kind of albums that we're talking about, but... I mean, well, the immediate follow-up to this album is a record called Prairie Wind, which is probably, like, the most conventional Neil album of the 21st century. Wistful, thinking about my childhood, thinking about, like, you know, my family, and then pretty much never makes a record like that again. Like, it's this very, like, Harvest vibe, 
But then, like, yeah, after that, he just goes, like, full weirdo, makes records like Fork in the Road about his car, a record called Chrome Dreams 2 that's a sequel to, like, a scrapped album, digs through the archives. Um, Yeah. So uh, at the end of every episode of this podcast, we are going to uh, conclude things um, with a segment called Fantasy or Delusion, which hopefully you know already is a reference to the great Billy Joel classical album, Fantasies and Delusions, which we will be discussing at some point on this pod. And if not, now you know. If, this, if an album is a fantasy, that means it is a good record, basically. It's something we could recommend to our friends. It's something we'll return to. We find something redeeming about it. If it's a delusion, it's bad. And every album will be judged according to this metric. First of uh, all, if you don't know the Billy Joel classical album, Fantasies and Delusions... Close the window right now on this podcast and don't come back because you don't belong. This isn't the podcast for you. Sorry, Osiris. Thank you. For, I was going to say it, but I didn't want. To. <laughs> Somebody had to say it. I'd rather lose yeah. listeners and uh, you know advertisers than fucking deal with a listener base that doesn't know about the pian- classical piano book published by Billy Joel in two thousand one. I would say if you don't know about fantasies and delusions, then that's great, and you're listening to exactly the right podcast because we can't wait to explore that world with you. This is like a good cop, bad cop routine that we're doing. Um, okay, so Greendale. Uh, I'll go first. I would very... Sorry, I kind of lost my momentum there. Are you crying? <laughs> yeah. I strongly believe that this album is a fantasy. Uh, first few listens, I had a hard time with it. Like I alluded to, um, there is a certain rudimentary aspect to some of the music that was a little difficult for me to relate to. Uh, I did sort of feel like some of those critics of the early 2000s Sam was talking about where I felt like it was kind of half-assed. But then certain things like the sound of the band. uh, So this is Crazy Horse without a rhythm guitarist. So it really has this distinct kind of trio vibe. It's so minimal. It's so stripped down. Uh, The fact that that Neil is kind of like doing this kind of ranty like half off the mic singing thing kind of adds to the vibe there as getting into the kind of down and dirty grittiness of it and then finally like this story aspect which maybe on its own wouldn't make like the great american novel but it sort of forces neil into this songwriting mode that's so strange and distinct like on songs like Carmichael and and Grandpa's interview, like uh, Winston was saying, it kind of feels like he's just um, trying to like get as many words out as he can, uh, and it kind of produces like a new, different kind of Neil Young song that, like, yeah, you can take as part of this big elaborate narrative, or you can kind of just like let the words wash over you and be like, oh, he's now talking about Wayne Newton, and now there's this cool guitar solo, and now it's like cops talking at a funeral for some reason uh has this kind of like surreal impressionistic vibe to it and finally like i just want to shout out the song bandit which to me was like this amazingly beautiful like super spare raw uh kind of ghostly song that comes out of nowhere in the middle of this record i still don't have any idea how it's supposed to fit into the storyline but I love that this conceptual framework somehow got him to a song like that, which like is a really heartbreaking, special piece of music. Yeah, um, yeah, it'd be hard to say it isn't a fantasy. I mean, by any match, even if you don't necessarily enjoy a lot of the music which i do uh it's the definition of a 
a fantasy in terms of the kind of inspired vibe of it that is infectious um, <laughs> to me. But I, I do think that like compared to other kind of later kind of uh, quickly rendered or what some might say tossed off albums of his that have maybe sort of a similar sound. I mean, th these songs are distinctive. Like I, I, I haven't listened to this album a ton, but I know exactly how all of them go. Um, even, and even though a lot of them are just like around a pretty simple riff or don't have like a heavily melodic thing going, they have a lot of lines to latch onto as somebody who likes storytelling type songs. Uh, not to overuse, um, as these boys know, I kind of talk about this a lot, but I like Randy Newman a lot, and there are some moments that remind me of Randy Newman. Carmichael, for instance, which is like this scene with many different characters at this wake, and then there's this weird diversion, which is extremely Randy to me, about like the widow of the dead police officer remembering a random... First of all, she introduces her... her uh, her uh, monologue about him by being like Carmichael you asshole you know and then she's like we met Wayne Newton down on Pebble Beach and you acted like a fool but I loved you for it you know like this kind of like kind of perverse sarcasm to that story which also has but also heart it's heartbreaking yeah yeah there's there's like a, a dark humor about it but it's also heartbreaking which is also true of like grandpa's interview um, and so those songs with the repeat listens I could I could like really sink into and Bandit is musically like so evocative and a highlight for me uh, and and the lyric you know uh, I didn't know the backstory that Sam explained but that makes me like it even more honestly like he was stringing out a thing really directly like pulling on a pulling on a thread coming out of his heart if you're gonna get a visual on that like endless thread coming out of the, his heart cavity and I'm doing this. I'm miming it. You guys can see it on the Zoom. <laughs> yeah. And uh, with He's that with it. that thread, I'm going to yeah. pass it over to Sam. He's handing the thread to Sam. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, for me, it's a fantasy as well. And also just a masterpiece, in my opinion. Just like one of my favorite records of the 2000s. Um, I think that... I mean, I, I like a lot of Neil's 21st Century Records... But compared to my other favorites, um, there isn't really a precedent for this in his discography. Like, I love Psychedelic Pill, but I'm also like, you know, it's like, I love it because it's like crazy horse jamming and like these kinds of like anthems, which, you know, is something you come to Neil Young for. Or I love Silver and Gold, but it's because I love like soft, hushed, acoustic Neil. This record to me is like a total challenge to himself as a writer. And I think it poses interesting questions about late career work in general. The idea that you have like this like fictional world you're creating where one of the characters is like, you know, hate spiteful toward its creator, which is the singer. I just think all of it is there's so much to chew on. And I think his devotion to the project. Um, there's this one quote where someone an interviewer confronted him about like the fact of like turning off audiences with it. And he said, Neil said, Greendale deserves for me to give it my full shot and take whatever heat comes my way. And I don't know. I think that's all, all you got to say. Pretty amazing. I, yeah. I also will say this is my petition to NYA, the Neil Young archives to please reissue this album on vinyl. Uh, it's currently only available on like Discogs and eBay for hundreds of dollars in this obscene box set that was released at the time. And it's like the one Neil album I love that I don't have in my collection. Yeah. Um, maybe to finance uh, your purchase of it on vinyl, you could take your DVD copy, because I know that you have it on DVD, and you <laughs> mentioned true. you don't like the film all that much. <laughs> And I've been sell it waiting. To one of you guys. I've been waiting for an opportunity to mention. Yeah, you could sell it to us, or you could sell it on Amazon, where the cheapest copy currently selling is eighty dollars for the DVD of Greendale. Yeah, and then you could take that money and buy an LP with it. It's in like this to like people who want to buy it on DVD. I swear it's in like this flimsy little case 
with just like a s- screenshot from it on the front cover. It's not a very luxurious package. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting here that it, you can't really watch it on YouTube. Uh, I had to get uh, a friend who will not be named because uh, he'll get arrested. He torrented uh, the movie for us. It's exceptionally hard to watch. But worth 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 the effort. Easy to easy to actually watch, but hard to come by. Yeah. I guess you could say. <laughs> well, boys, I'm gonna start doing this a lot more on this podcast versus Welcome to Chicago. Ha <laughs> I'm I'm gonna start doing that too. Yeah, it's something that all three of us should do. I need some time. To, I need some time to practice. Ha <laughs> ha. That's another. <laughs> that's a first, very first episode of a great new podcast that I assume you're going to come back and listen to called Late Era. <laughs> next time. Should we just be like telling people what's next time on the... It'd be funny to lie. Like just make up albums. Next, uh, Tune in next week. We'll be talking about Rod Stewart's metal album Metal Heart from the year 2008. Yeah. So if you don't like that, then fuck off. No, thanks. Late uh, <laughs> era. I've been Winston. I have been Andy, and I still am. And I will be Sam Sadomsky for the rest of my life. Ha ha.